Welcome to The Reeves Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a podcast where I talk about medieval things that I find interesting. In this episode, I'll be talking about one of the key elements of medieval Europe, namely the Catholic Church, and what exactly we mean when we use this term. The idea here is to get some background. In today's world, we think of the Roman Catholic Church as one particular flavor of Christianity to choose from, especially here in the States. But in the medieval world, to say the Catholic Church meant simply the Church, apart from scattered rebels who refused its authority. To understand how this came about, we need to start from the beginning. Let's take ourselves back then back to the days of ancient Rome. The legions of Rome trod the lands around the Mediterranean beneath their sandaled feet, while the emperors reigned from the city of Rome. It was an empire that took up nearly as much land as the continental United States today, stretching from the highlands of northern Britain to the shores of the Red Sea. But at the same time, in a faraway province of the empire, a hilly land of desert and scrub a new religion had started. You don't need to be told what I'm talking about. It was Christianity, an offshoot of what religious history scholars call Second Temple Judaism. A rabbi named Yeshua, modern English Jesus, had preached a kingdom of heaven that would radically alter society, where the last would be first and the first would be last, where the poor would no longer be wretched and oppressed, he taught that justice and mercy were more important than ceremonial law. And, most crucially, he called himself the Son of God. And so, of course, he had drawn the attention of the authorities in Jerusalem. After all, a man claiming to be the Son of God would be blaspheming, tarnishing the monotheism of the Jewish people. Worse still, a man proclaiming a kingdom of heaven might draw the attention of Rome. And, well for the Jewish leadership and the people of Judea, that would be bad. So, the Judean elites and the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, had him arrested, and after a quick trial, he was crucified, buried, and that, as they say, was that. Now then, it's time for a sidebar here. I'm a historian, and I'm also a Christian, albeit not a very good one. So, I believe the accounts of the origins of the Christian religion, but I also get why others don't. So, I'll be discussing these accounts both as a historian, but also as a Christian. So, that's sort of a disclaimer here. And, of course, Christians believe that this rabbi, this Jesus, rose from the dead, since he'd been the promised one anointed to deliver Israel from oppression. They said that he had appeared to his disciples his followers, and that he had told them to baptize people in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and after that he had ascended into heaven. His followers had spread this new religion, which they were told to do until such time as he returned. Eventually, a Pharisee, that is, an interpreter of the Torah, converted to this new movement, and this Pharisee, named Saul, became known by his Greek name, Paulos, thus the Apostle Paul. Apostle, of course, meaning one who is sent out. He and Peter, 
Peter had been the chief of his disciples while he was on earth, led the preaching of this new faith. Much of this is familiar to us all. What's important, though, is how this faith was received in Rome. Now then, Romans generally didn't persecute followers of a religion unless that religion threatened the Roman state. Heck, oftentimes when they conquered a people, they'd change the nameplate at the local temple from a local god to a Roman god that was similar enough, and that would be that. This is what scholars call the interpretatio romana, and I may talk about the interpretatio more in a subsequent episode. But monotheism was weird. Monotheists like Jews wouldn't take part in any Greco-Roman religion. And you certainly weren't going to use the interpretatio romana to assimilate the Lord God of Israel to Jupiter. Romans didn't quite know what to make of this, but they figured that Judaism was old, and old was respectable, and so they allowed it. Christianity, though, was different. It was a new religion that had come from nowhere, was just as monotheistic, and so its followers wouldn't take part in civic religion. And to the Romans, this was being a bad citizen. This was atheism. Sure, they'd say, a good citizen can worship Jesus or whoever. But you also needed to at least make a show of taking part in your local religious rituals. But instead, Christians denounced these rituals as idolatry, worshiping a thing that's not God. As you might imagine, then, this new religion's followers often got into trouble. But this religion spread. The promise of forgiveness of one's sins, relief of guilt for failing to morally live up, and the promise of eternal life, the idea of a resurrection of the dead at the end of time, well, that resurrection of the dead for the followers of this religion, that was a powerful incentive to many. And as the first generation of apostles died, they appointed successors and their successors appointed successors. Eventually, there came to be enough Christians that there was a whole network of overseers, Greek episkopoi, the guys that in English we call bishops, and each bishop led the Christian community, the church of a particular city or region. This is what we call apostolic succession, the idea that bishops and the pope and patriarchs, exist in an unbroken chain from the apostles, and thus bear apostolic authority on earth. And how were Christians to make sense of the Hebrew Bible together with the writings of the first apostles? Well, the leaders of the church gradually worked out the notion that certain of these texts were equal in authority to their Bible, a New Testament to the Old Testament that had been given to the Hebrews. And these Christians further had to work out how to interpret this New Testament alongside the Old. The writers hammering out these doctrines over the first several centuries were what we call the Church Fathers. And the Fathers had to deal with the question of how the Church should teach and practice. After all, if you're seeking to live in obedience to God and spread his teachings, you all need to be on the same sheet of music as to what these teachings are. This led to questions of heresy and orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right teaching, coming from the same root as, for example, 
orthodontics, which give you right teeth. Heresy comes from the Greek word hieresis, which had meant a choice or originally a sect. This word the early church writers of the church applied to groups claiming to be Christian, but whose teachings and practice deviated from those of the apostolic church. Our chief figure here is Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon in the second century. In his Against Heresies, he argued against certain groups with heretical claims, in particular a group that modern scholars call Gnostics from the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. These guys had a set of beliefs that said that the world we live in hadn't been the work of a good creator god, but a lunatic demiurge who created matter and the universe. This mad demiurge, named Yaldabaoth, went on to trap spirits in matter, and that is why human souls are stuck in this physical world of suffering, even though human souls are spirit. This, said the Gnostics, this Yaldabaoth, was the god of the Old Testament, and Jesus, according to the Gnostics, had not been this god's son. Rather, Jesus had been an emissary from the true god, the god of spirit. Jesus, they said, was Yaldabaoth's enemy, and he sought to free people from his grasp. These Gnostics rejected the flesh and held that Jesus had been sent to free people from our bodily prison. They said that you should deny yourself and learn, get a knowledge of the aeons, that is, the spirits who emanated from the God of Spirit, and then upon death you would ascend through the aeons and reach the realm of spirit, escaping the cycle of death and rebirth. These Gnostics used Christian scriptures to support their claim that their Christianity was the true Christianity. So how did Irenaeus argue against them? By apostolic succession. These groups, said Irenaeus, could not trace their origins to the apostles, while the Catholic Church could. Let's remember, Catholic is simply Greek for universal. So it was by apostolic succession that the church made its claim to authority. This is a point that I cannot emphasize enough. In the first few centuries of the Christian church, claims to authority rested on the organization of the church. The New Testament flowed from the church, not the other way around. But let's get back to church and empire. Remember how Christians had gotten into trouble with Rome? Well, that kept happening, although persecution was off and on. Heck, there were often periods when the Roman policy to the Christian church was one of don't ask, don't tell. As long as you didn't publicly disrespect the gods or the emperor, you wouldn't be persecuted. But finally, at the end of the 3rd century, the Roman emperor Diocletian tried to stamp out this faith by force. Executions, imprisonments, you name it. He threw the full weight of Rome behind his efforts to stamp out Christianity. After he retired from office, the Emperor Constantine chose a different track. You see, in one of Rome's many, many civil wars, Constantine, we're told, had a vision. And in this vision he saw a cross in the sky, and beneath it the words, In this sign you shall conquer. So says Eusebius, his biographer and early church historian. Well, figured Constantine, why not give it a shot? 
So he raised a Christian emblem on his standard, called the Labaro. And what do you know? He ended up winning the war. So he figured this Christian god was okay, and legalized Christianity with the 313 Edict of Milan. Not only that, but he favored Christianity. And eventually, the Emperor Theodosius would make it the official religion of Rome in 395. Not bad for a religion that had started out calling Rome a seven-headed dragon. So now we have Rome. And that blends with Christianity. And that blending of Roman and Christian is going to be one theme of this podcast. In fact, that blending is still visible. Look at a Roman Catholic or a priest from the Episcopal Church. Have you ever wondered where those vestments come from? Well, my friend, those vestments are, more or less, the outfit worn by a 4th century Roman patrician. Yes, modern Catholic, Lutheran, and Anglican vestments are a late Roman power suit. But the issue of heresy and orthodoxy came up again. You see, from the very earliest days of the Church, Christians had baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But what exactly did this mean? If Jesus was the Son of God, did that imply he was lesser? But then, isn't the Son of a human father of the same nature as that father? And what was going on with the Holy Spirit? Some Christians argued that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were co-eternal and one God, while others argued that Jesus, Son of God, was God's creation. These arguments began to get testy, since, after all, if you're getting your sins forgiven and going to heaven when you die depends on getting belief right, well... So, Constantine himself was a bit shocked that this church, whose god had rocketed him to the purple, was falling into infighting. So he called a council of the whole church at Nicaea in Asia Minor in 325. This is the first of what we call ecumenical councils. Councils where the whole church would meet to hammer out issues of doctrine and practice. The meeting itself was spectacular. Men from all over the Roman Empire had gathered, and eventually the emperor himself entered the basilica, the meeting hall, in full imperial majesty, sitting up at a chair to preside over the council. This church had a mandate, and that mandate was to figure out what they believed about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Debate was intense. To include a fist fight in which St. Nicholas, whom you may know as Santa Claus, administered a beatdown to one of those men who argued that Jesus was lesser than God the Father. Eventually, the Council agreed to the formulation that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were co-eternal and also one God, the doctrine that we call the Holy Trinity. Of course, how to talk about that would end up opening many future cans of worms, but we'll save that for a later episode. Those who held that the Son was inferior were denounced as heretics and called Arians, since one of their more prominent partisans had been named Arius. You see this a lot with the early church. Heresies would be named after their alleged founder and leader, their heresiarch. And honestly, we ought to bring the word heresiarch back. Sounds so much cooler than cult leader. So that's one version of this story a universal church that defines heresy and orthodoxy. Now I'm going to give you a version of the story that I don't buy, 
but which a great many historians of early Christianity do. What if? What if the Catholic Church wasn't a unified body going all the way back to the Apostles? What if instead there were many local churches, many Christianities, and instead of there being one church from the beginning, one of these particular smaller Christian groups managed to impose its version of the story by dint of the power of Rome? What if the case for apostolic succession were actually weak? So now let's go back to the whole issue of the Holy Trinity. Yes, those believing in a Trinity triumphed in Nicaea. But even after the Council, it wasn't as cut and dried as all that. After all, Constantine himself had wavered as to whether he bought the Trinitarian position. Emperors after Constantine took the Arian position. It finally took Theodosius. The emperor, you'll remember, is the guy who made Rome officially Christian and closed the Temple of the Old Gods. It took Theodosius to turn the power of the Roman state to stamping out Arianism. This involved exiling and deposing a lot of bishops. So what we might have here is less the universal church winning out, and more one particular faction of the church using the power of the Roman army to impose its vision. Or go back even earlier to the question of the Catholic Church versus the Gnostics. Suppose that all we know are that there are competing Jesus movements, as would have been the case for being a second century Roman. Both of these groups have their own claims to succession. One group of Gnostics, after all, claimed to have a set of teachings going all the way back to Seth, the third son of Adam, the first man. Both groups had their own sets of scriptures. What if there were two groups with competing claims to a lineage from Jesus, but one of these groups survived not by being correct, but by being more organized and more able to impose discipline? And I say two groups, because I'm simplifying, with Gnostics and Catholics. There were many different groups that got condemned as heretical. Or heck, let's go back to the very early church. The letters of the Apostle Paul speak of a risen Christ, but say virtually nothing of his life, save for the fact that he was crucified, died, and rose again. The Gospels, the accounts of Christ's life, they date to the 70s, 80s, and 90s CE, generations after the life of Jesus. Could it possibly be that there was a belief in a savior figure, a heavenly Christ, and that only later were accounts of a man Jesus added to flesh out the story? There are certainly people who argue that. Now then, I will close by saying that I do not think that the case is strong for a savior figure that then only later had an earthly Jesus applied to his story. And why don't I think so? Well, oral traditions tend to be fairly strong for passing information down, especially in societies that have low literacy. And to me, it strains credulity to call the works of the Gospels an invention, especially because 
We do actually have other oral Jesus traditions with, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, which didn't make it into the canon. And those oral traditions often match what we find of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels that did make it into the Bible. And I'll talk about books that didn't, didn't make it into the Bible in the next episode. Here's another important reason why I don't really buy the notion of one Christianity stamping out others. The New Testament, those books that were regarded as authoritative, these did not emerge by bishops' fiat. Rather, the books that were regarded as New Testament emerged in their status as biblical by communities coming to a rough consensus. And this is hardly what we would expect if there were one version of Christianity that just imposed itself on others with the power of Rome. What about those who claim that the 4th century Catholics were just one faction that opposed themselves over and against the Arians? These people, I think, have a stronger case. Even there, though, I tend to think that Scripture strongly suggests a Jesus who is co-equal with the Father in nature, since, after all, John 1.1 1, 1 says, kai hologos en hoteos, kai hologos en proston theos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But I do try to be honest as a historian, and so I figured I would lay out alternate views for you. If you'd like to know more, consult the reading list in the podcast description on the webpage. Next time will be less of Andrew the Serious Historian and more of Andrew talking about things that are cool. And that will be when I talk about those books that didn't quite make it into the Bible. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.